Keiichi whakaranga mai koe ki nga pātaka kōrero o Tamaki Makoto. You're listening to Auckland Libraries on SoundCloud. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it, connects to it. At the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in family and local history from New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. The post-war theatre boom is on and overseas companies and artists are visiting us again. But today, many New Zealanders feel that it's time we had a professional theatre of our own. A beginning is being made. A number of experiments have been carried out already. Amateur societies have toured their productions, and a university group has gone as far afield as Australia. Another experiment is that of the Auckland Adult Education Centre. The plan is to tour the North Island from top to bottom, introducing live theatre to a wider audience. Kia ora koutou. Today, we present a talk by writer, director and actor Dr Murray Edmund, based on material from his forthcoming book, Time to Make a Song and Dance. Cultural Revolt in Auckland, 1960-1970. The talk was hosted in conjunction with the Curtains Up exhibition staged at Tamaki Pataka Kōrero, and which explored the rise of professional drama in Auckland. You can find further material from the exhibition in our playlist on Auckland Library's podcast page. Here Dr Edmund concentrates on the rise and fall of the Community Arts Service, or CAS Theatre, His research provides an interesting insight into attempts to diversify the dramatic offerings being staged in culturally conservative mid-20th century New Zealand. Haramai titahi ahoa. Enjoy the journey. Kia ora, mouta koutou hui hui mai nei, tēnā koutou. I'm going to start here with uh, Chekhov's Seagull and with this proposition, Soren, who's the kind of good old-fashioned voice of common sense saying, well, we must have a theatre, you know? And Treplev, who's the young rebel, saying, what we need is a new kind of theatre, new forms are what we need, and if we haven't got them, we'd be a better sight off with nothing at all. So that's kind of, I'm just setting up a little bit of a paradigm for my talk. Um, And I'll come back to this. If you like, the first um, proposition might be proposed in terms of New Zealand that it is the colonial position. We must have what we had there, here, and the second one, if you like to think about it, is a national, nationalist proposition in broad terms. So who recognises this building? I was there. Yeah, we're there, yeah. Good on you, excellent. So what is it now? It's still there? Yes, it's still there. It's the James Hinare Research Centre. 18 Wynyard Street. Okay, so how did it get there? How was it used? What was Auckland's first professional theatre? So Ronald Barker, writing in the Auckland Festival Souvenir Programme for 1959, said about CAS Theatre that it was the oldest professional company in New Zealand. Uh, He would have been comparing it to the New Zealand Players, who were formed in 53 and collapsed in 1960, formed by Edith and Richard Campion. 
Um, so the Vivian Lee Theatre here, as it's called and pictured, this is 1965, I think, would, would have been the first proper home, so to speak, after 13 years of continuous operation for the CAS Theatre. But, but it wasn't to be, and that is my story. CAS really starts in 1946, but it was housed on Simon Street in the buildings which were the Auckland Grammar School, but there was a big fire in January 49 and everything was burned. We don't really know a very great deal about it, but the serious kind of theatre endeavour really begins in 49. The last shows in 62, but CAS staggers on until 66 as an organisation. So this sort of, as with all dating in history, dates don't mean what they really mean. Um, and the Seagull, which is my theme, of course, in 1962, directed by Ronald Barker, was CAS's last production. Okay, so CAS was a new form, to quote Treplev, for New Zealand. It was modelled directly on CEMA, that's C-E-M-A, the Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts. And this was created during the Second World War in England as a kind of cheer-up brigade from the arts for people who were losing heart in, the, in, in, the, in, in Great Britain at the time because of the bombing and the war. Um, and Owen Jensen um, brought this idea to New Zealand in 1946 as part of adult education, which was getting underway in a big way after the Second World War. Um, he set up the Cambridge Music School and he also set up the CAS Community Art Service. And they toured um, and good performances in music, with singers, in dance, which was really ballet mostly, with art shows and exhibitions, and also theatre. Those were the main five things. And of course they gave classes, they were part of that as well. So at first its programming was not as radical as its form. It was, in a way, I mean Barker did compare it to La Barraca, which was Lorca's company with the students when they toured around in Spain just before the Civil War, or maybe the group theatre under New Deal in America. He was very aware of that um, comparison. But the first director to come in in 1949 was Harold Bajant, and he was there until 56. So um, Bajant's programming um, for CAS was reasonably standard for the times, Priestley, Shaw, as we saw there, Shakespeare, Twelfth Night in 1950, and Merchant of Venice in 52, and then a memorable Tempest in 55, Noel Coward, Christopher Fry, who was big then, Terence Radigan, Charlie's Aunt, in which Bajan himself played the lead, um, and then in the mid-50s, Miller's All My Sons, and William's Glass Menagerie, which was directed by Douglas Drury in 56. So that was that kind of fair. The company was different from the New Zealand players. The Campions defined their mission as, I quote, to provide varied and first-class theatre. So they were really with Soren in this game. There was no educational intent, there was no necessary teaching role, no attachment to a university. It was a private venture. They toured nationally. CAS was within what was then known as the Auckland province, something that's sort of disappeared. From Kaitaia to Gisborne they went, um, sometimes to Wellington even to do seasons. So in Philippa Uhlenberg wrote a thesis at Waikato in music about CAS, its history and context, and she noted there that there is much research and writing still to be done in this important field. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming in. 
Bajant himself left in 1956. He went to South Australia. He worked for many years in the South Australian equivalent of that. And if you want to go home and switch him on, just go to the opening of Mad Max 2. Remember the monologue there? That's Harold Bajant. Yeah. <laughs> and Ruddle Barker turns up in 1957. So it was a bit of a hiatus, November 1957. Okay, I just want to also make the usual apology for a modern audience. You'll notice very few women get a mention in this talk. Um, I am discussing the cultural politics and the institutional politics of the time, and that's why. Um, but I do want to note Ronald Barker's wife, Lillian, who designed costumes for almost all of CAS's productions from 58 to 62. She also co-translated uh, Camus' play from French with her husband, and their elder child, Avril, was a teenage actress and played the role of the maid in Strindberg's Miss Julie in 1964 for Ronald and Lillian Barker Productions, a company formed after Barker had left CAS. Um, also to note that adult education did teach classes in Te Reo Māori, in terms of the arts, just to give you some idea of the times, if some of you will remember, if you weren't there, um, in um, 1963, the Auckland Māori Community Centre wrote to the Auckland Festival, which had been going by then for about 14, 15 years, suggesting that Māori might be included. The reply, and I quote thanks to the George Grey Room from the letter from the Auckland Festival Committee, said, there is a permanent display of arts and crafts at the museum. It's a place for you. So, thank you, George Grey Room. So Barker's arrival, I think, changed the nature of the programming for CAS Theatre um, and something more like Treplev's vision of a new theatre began to come out. So I've just listed here some of the things that CAS was trying to do. They were trying to be professional, they were trying to provide a community service, they were trying to provide education, they were trying to provide entertainment, they had an aesthetic ambition, they were trying to provide some industry training because there was none in New Zealand, and they were also touring as well as doing shows, seasons in Auckland and also touring as well. So if you look at those, you can see there are inherent built-in contradictions available to them. Um, so Barker died in September 1968. I, I have, I'm not really reading this, I'm just looking at it, but I have got a, this is just, because it's a chapter from a book, I'm just going to read a bit, which is the opening of the chapter. The Mercury Theatre in France Street, now Mercury Lane, off Karangahapi Road, presented its first performance on the 1st of May 1968. In September 1968, Ronald Barker died in Auckland in his mid-50s. Playwright, critic, and poet Alan Curnow wrote in the Auckland Star an impassioned obituary for Barker. I quote, when our theater can afford the luxury of retrospect, it must turn, if it does not center, upon the years 1958 to 1964. Those years of Barker's life were given to theatre in this country. He released us from the provincialism which confined us to the safe modernities of the past 20 years. End of quote. So what would the man who was the first in New Zealand to stage Waiting for Godot 
Anne Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale, who toured Marguerite Duras' play The Square and directed Curnow's play's Moon Section and Dr. Pom have had to say about the sad provincialism of the Mercury's choice of J.M. Barry's The Admirable Crichton to open their Arts Council-funded theatre in Auckland on, of all days, May Day, in the very month when the paving stones of Paris were being torn up to find the beach beneath. Barker's comments are not recorded, but I believe the time has come for that retrospect, which Curnow pointed to. There is a story to be told, one that does centre on those years, and the events of that story were followed by the installation of the Mercury as often perceived as Auckland's first professional theatre. If you look at Don Smith's writing, a tribute piece to John Cowie Reed, he calls it exactly that, but it was not. Okay, so let's have a look at some of um, Barker's work. Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale, Osborne's Look Back in Anger, done for the Auckland Drama Council, not for CAS. Ionesco's The Chairs, which had only been done in English, in, I think, anywhere in a year before. He did the Monteverdi Opera with the students at the university, Music and Elam students. Um, he tried to put on, I'll come to this, Ibsen's Ghosts for CAS, but was stopped. Uh, he instead did J.M. Barry's Mary Rose, more of that later. He tried very hard to do Alan Curnow's The Ex Overseas Expert, but he was not able to I'll come to that as well. Shakespeare's Love's Labour's Lost, which was the first production of that play, I think, in New Zealand. He did Schoenberg's Piero Lunaire, and then with the new company he formed with Lillian, Strindberg's Miss Julie, Beckett's Happy Days, Pinter's A Slight Ache, and Curnow's Dr. Pom. So it's quite an interesting range of material for the time. Um, it's kind of cutting in where things are going, if you like. In addition, he did lectures around Auckland. There were summer schools, which was the only real training available, sort of using the Cambridge Music School as a model. And then he started this thing which Remco was in, which was a theatre workshop in 1960 and 1961 which fitted into the university terms. It was run at night from 7 till 10.30, um, and it did two productions a year. So it was three eight-week terms. So it was a kind of closet, closet kind of um, drama school, really, uh, that he installed inside the university and the CAS um, parameters. Barker himself, just to give you a little information about him, um, he seems to have started work as a teenager in Terence Gray's Cambridge Festival Theatre in the late 1920s, and so probably directed by Tyrone Guthrie there. But um, in the festival programme in 59, he points to two people as being his mentors. One is Theodor Komisayevsky, um, and he's the Russian director who came out, he worked with Diaghilev in 1919, he came out of Russia. He's really the reason that we think Chekhov is an English playwright. You know how people think you do Chekhov, um, and it's written in English. Um, it was he married Peggy Ashcroft, and she was in the Seagull, and he really installed in the 1920s and 30s Chekhov as an English kind of theatre thing. Um, so he's a very important figure in that way. Um, he left for the States in 1939 from England, um, and the other person is Michel Saint Denis who, of course, was a student of Coppo and Suzanne Bing, um, started the 1935 London Theatre Studio, and um, he went on to be co-director of the Royal Shakespeare and the Strasbourg School and work at, then at the Juilliard in New York. So his um, pedigree in training was quite impressive. 
For seven years, he was on Field Marshal Montgomery's staff during the Second World War. And in 1948, with George Rylands, he started the first Berlin Festival, which was one of those things of trying to kind of revive the world, which all that festivalization that happened after the Second World War. He then went to work at the Cambridge Arts Theatre, which John Maynard Keynes had started in 1936. He worked there as a director, and then he got interested in community arts, and he became the drama advisor to the County of Leicester. And in 1953, he was one of the founders of Plays and Players magazine. So he had, and he went on to do freelance journalism and so on. So he had kind of a wide-ranging set of credentials. Um, he's been described as flamboyant, eccentric, and demonstrative. Josephine Brunet, Brunette, who was in Love's Labour's Lost, said, as a director, he screamed and yelled. That was his way of getting the best out of people. I answered him back, so we got on fine. And Rosalie Carey said, he was very English, double-breasted suit with floral hanky in the breast pocket and a bow tie and odd socks, one Russian red, one navy blue. 18 months after he was here, he published in Mate magazine, in the third Mate magazine, a little piece called Sleepy Hollow. So I put up some quotes here to see a well-dressed man is indeed a rarity. These were his impressions of New Zealand. For Pākehā, the earth merely exists to be plundered. There is little difference between the outlook of a farmer in Hokianga to that of the average citizen of Auckland. Does a New Zealand audience want just entertainment to lull them to sleep? Quite a considerable amount of talent in the creative arts that exists, quite a titanic push to get it away from the mass of mediocrity, which is often, unfortunately, highly praised by people who should know better. To be in any degree different from the neighbour next door would appear to be a crime. So he was a kind of walking one-man revolt, <laughs> and he didn't set out to please our oh-so-modest vanities. Um, so he ended up with several controversies and confrontations. CAS grew during the 1950s. Um, you know, they had local committees, and when you went as a performer, you were billeted, and there was that sort of exchange, which was the aim of it, between rural and urban, or between you know, I don't know what, cultured people and uncultured people, some kind of mythology. Anyway, there were 31 of those when Bajant started in 1949, but by 1958, there were over 70 local committees in the Auckland province. So it was quite an extraordinary setup. Um, so I'm just going to refer to some of the renovations and extensions that um, Barker tried to put into the CAS model. So the kind of material he put in resulted in conflicts. He set up this urban training program uh, called the Theatre Workshop, uh, which ran for two years, 60 and 61. He became directly involved with the Auckland Festival, doubling CAS productions with Auckland Festival productions, but with resulting conflicts. Um, he worked on new plays, and so Alan Kuno was notably the person he worked with. He worked on Moon Section, and on um, the overseas expert. I think it's interesting, at this time, Richard Campion was doing the same thing with Baxter and Wellington. So he did um, Jack Winter's Dream, The Wide Open Cage, Three Women, and The Spots of a Leopard over that decade from about mid-50s to mid-60s with Baxter. I think they're much more interesting plays than the huge lump of things that came out of Otago, but it's just a critical <coughs> diversion. Um, <laughs> But it was working with Campion there, and ba Barker was working with Kuno. It was an interesting kind of 
period in potential. Um, he did the, the, the expected classes, the summer schools, the local lectures, and so on. Um, and he moved to found and create this all-purpose, uh, for-purpose for purpose rather, building the Vivian Lee Theatre. So, just I'll start and look at some of the controversies. The first one, of course, is waiting for Godot. Um, if you look at the program from that time, it's the program announces waiting for Godot is real entertainment and is a type of theatre New Zealand has not had the opportunity of seeing. It's all in capital letters across the program. Um, the part of Vladimir was played by Peter Varley. Varley had come to New Zealand. He'd been in Joan Littlewood's Stratford Theatre in England, and he came here for Nio Marsh's company she set up in the early 50s, which was a rather catastrophic disaster. But he stayed on. Um, and he said that, I would like to do a play and go to jail for it next morning. <laughs> so there was a certain insouciance on parade, if you like. Um, so the responses to Waiting for Godot were extreme. A quote from the Raglan CAS committee, I greatly fear this may, this is a telegram, you see, telegrams are the thing of the day. I greatly fear this may be the end of CAS in this district. And from Kaitaia, withdraw blasphemous obscenity before it destroys CAS. But it wasn't all that way. Kurnow was right. From the countryside, from Fitikahu in the Waikato, we get, we are eagerly waiting for Godot. Stop. Do not let CAS be stampeded into any retreat. Stop. We support Ronald Barker. Yay, Fitikahu. <laughs> <laughs> so the Adult Education Report for 1958 calls this the year of waiting for Godot. By the end of the year, CAS Theatre, it says, had a standing as high as it had ever had before. And Uhlenberg, in her thesis, writes, by 1958, CAS was moving towards sponsoring New Zealand drama and playwrights with the stated aim of advancing a national theatre. This had been kicked around, of course, for over a decade, the idea of a national theatre. Um, and in the minutes for 1959 at the meeting, you hear, there's a quote, considerable discussion took place to the role CAS should play in setting up an arts council in New Zealand. So this is thanks to the Auckland Library <laughs> special collections room. So thank you, Joe. <laughs> thank the librarians for having this material. And um, what's interesting here, a committee was set up with Professor Musgrove from the English Department, with Hollis Cocker, who had been on the national um, adult education from the beginning, and Stuart Morrison, who was in charge of adult education at Auckland right through its entire existence. Everybody knew an Arts Council was coming, and the thing was created in 1960 called the Arts Advisory Council. So people were starting to you know, get into the right place to start the horse. Um, so that was the Godot controversy. Then after Godot, we moved to Moon Section. Moon Section was, uh, had quite a lot of negative feedback. Kurnow said of Barker, I quote, attendance at all his rehearsals was the best education I have had in writing for the stage. And of the reception of Moon Section, Kurnow said, that Auckland element, which through Herald and Star, attempted to dodge the meaning of Moon Section by calling it symbolic, intellectual, puzzling, etc. And a few people who also said they couldn't understand it, but were quite sure it was dirty, sexy, or disgusting. 
I might have told you that at least 10 of the 20 country audiences on the subsequent tour had no difficulty at all about the meaning, only the half-baked city sophisticates. You can see Kuno was exercised by that. Um, then there was a negative reaction following that to the next play for 1959, which was Playboy of the Western World. Nobody could understand it because of the Irish accents, apparently. Um, so when it came to 1960, um, Barker proposed doing Ibsen's Ghosts, which of course is the VD play, all those congenital syphilis plays. Right? <laughs> um, I remember as a child at this time you'd see VD painted on walls and toilets and things for some obscure reason, but the CAS committees rose up and refused to accept it. And so he chose instead to do J.M. Barry's play Mary Rose and toured that instead. So this was his feeling about capitulating. He wrote a long report in 1960. Why the choice of Mary Rose for the only theatrical tour of the year? The answer is obvious. The play had everything that a New Zealand audience demands. It was written 40 years ago. It's quite removed from reality. And life is seen through rose-colored glass. It's in period costume, so it is safe. The world is a happy place. All is well with, and no one can be hurt or touched. And of course, this was the case. And then he waxed prophetic. The future of New Zealand theatre would appear to be in the balance. The play must have colour, be removed from reality, not touch life as it is known here with its peculiar problems. In other words, the demand for the theatre is real, providing the responsibility which goes with every vital theatrical production is ignored. So it brings us back to that moment between Soren and Treplev and the seagull. What do you really want to have? That or nothing at all? Um, so, it was a difficult moment in New Zealand culture, especially in relation to theatre. I've got a, three quotes here I'll just read. Bruce Mason, writing after the collapse of the New Zealand players in Landfall, said, The history of the New Zealand players suggests that New Zealand as a whole is not a viable unit for theatre. It's kind of an extraordinary statement, but there we go. <laughs> Bill Broughton, though, reviewing Frank Sargison's play, A Time for Sewing, which was put on in 61 over in the, where the library was then, um, wrote about that play. Um, it will probably stand with Kuno's The Axe somewhat in isolation from whatever tradition may develop in the future. It's a kind of groping for something that might come into being. And Charles Brash, writing in Landfall Notes in 1959, wrote about New Zealand, he describes it as only half alive intellectually and socially, sunk in a dream of lotus eating. It was not generally a good time. And Barker, of course, did not ingratiate himself with the local power brokers. In writing about New Zealand critics, he identified two types of critic. And I quote, on the one hand is the fierce fire of moral judgment with little or no artistic perception. The pontiff of this vein is John Reed of Auckland. On the other hand, there is the critic who was only interested in writing about himself. He might, really might not have been at the performance at all. Bruce Mason of Wellington leads this group. <laughs> Such comments were not going to stand him in good stead. The next controversy that arose was over the overseas expert. Um, which Kuno kind of fired by what he wanted to achieve in the playwriting and by working with Barker had finished that by February 1960 and with substantial input, I think, into the writing from uh, Kuno. And 
Barker wanted to put it on um, for CAS for 1961, but he couldn't cast it. The play was broadcast on NZBC on the 27th of May 1961 with Tim Elliott playing Bob Soper. Elliott was one of the founders of Downstage. Um, and so he took, Barker took it to the festival committee where he was on the planning committee. Um, but the commi they played the radio version uh, to the festival committee on the 18th of December 1961 and Julius Hogman walked out at half time. He was the chair of the Auckland Festival. Uh, only three people voted for it. Barker himself, Peter Tomroy, of course, who was uh, director of the art gallery, and Wynne Colgan, who was the assistant uh, librarian at the library over there. Tomroy and Colgan would resign a year later over the next play controversy, um, which was about fairy tales of New York. Um, so the reason they didn't like it, yeah, let's, I'll just give you a couple of quotes from the overseas expert. Yes, this is Curnow saying, this very shop-soiled Queen City, this redundant slum of the far south seas with its town hall clock for a diddle in the middle and nobody smiles in the street for fear of the police. Things change, no? Um, and the summary of Auckland's elite, they've been at it since the Maori Wars. They've got the biggest yachts, the most horses, the plushest lodges at Taupo. Their pockets are always open for royalty to piss in. This Auckland Festival wasn't going to put this on. <laughs> they recognised themselves. I've done a separate chapter on the festival. It really is extraordinary. Um, so, but the plan was to um, put the play on at the, as the first production for the Vivian Lee Theatre uh, in May 1962. So the conversion of that building... Um, seems to have happened really quite quickly. The University of Auckland came into being in 1962. If you'll remember, there was only one university in New Zealand until then, which was called the University of New Zealand. And they had four colleges. And it was created at that point. And at the same time, Auckland University, as it became, didn't, decided not to move out to Tamaki. That meant they started buying up a lot of land um, including all that land in Winyard Street. Now they've closed Winyard Street off and fortified it so you can't get in. But um, <laughs> that, that, was, that house was part of that buy-up. At the same time, Professor Musgrove had been on leave and he came back to adult education and he declared at a meeting in April 61 that the present attempt to maintain a permanent CAS theatre was impracticable. So... Um, Barker and Musgrove were delegated to form a subcommittee and present a report about what to do. I've searched for that report. I don't think it exists, but there we are. Alan Kurnow's biography insists that Barker was strongly supported by Stuart Morrison in the uh, adult education and by Musgrove. All of them interested in developing, I quote this here from the biography, CAS is a second national professional company, which must refer again to the New Zealand players. So... Uh, in lieu of that, this building campaign began on the campus, but the 18 Wynyard Street conversion to the Vivian Lee Theatre was achieved rapidly, uh, entirely at adult education's expense, so Stuart Morrison did it himself, in the last months of 1961. So what they created there was a boutique, 70-seat <laughs> arena-style space with some workshop and backstage space. At the time... Vivian Lee and the old Vic Company were touring Australia and New Zealand. 
Vivian was doing viola in Twelfth Night at the age of 49, good on her. Um, and she was here performing that and she agreed to lend her name and her presence to the opening on the 17th of February 1962 of the Vivian Lee Theatre. And the overseas export would be the first production. The great thing is the star reported that the overseas export would be the first production, which is one of the great typos because it actually tunes in with what's mostly in New Zealand papers at that time. Because overseas exports, were, you know, imports and overseas exports. <laughs> Barker said that it will be used as an experimental theatre by the CAS Theatre and the Auckland Theatre Workshop. And he said, God give us the power to make our dreams come true. And Vivian Lee said, God's blessing on everyone who acted there. But no one ever did. What happened next was sad, abrupt and dreadful in its consequences for Barker. On the 8th of March, just as the seagull was going on the road, Barker was arrested in a police sting. I quote from the Herald, a detective using a toilet in Durham Street West had watched two men in the next cubicle. This is the Herald. Unfortunately, the initial report in the paper mentioned Barker's name. A reporter had been at the police station that night and picked it up. When Barker appeared before a magistrate, he was granted name suppression. But as Bill Pearson wrote to John Newton in a letter John's given to me, of course, by then it was too late. So the situation turned swiftly against Barker. The Adult Education um, Council met on the 15th of March, and one of the ironies of this meeting was an agenda item already tabled for March 1962. The council was concerned with the position of theatre in New Zealand and had come to the conclusion the university was a suitable body to receive arts advisory council funds for the development of the professional theatre. The present plan was for professional drama groups to be established attached to universities for work in cities as well as country districts. The Council of Adult Education favoured the idea of Auckland running a pilot scheme. So things are very much in position at that point. But of course, the other, another item on the, a late item on the agenda was a special meeting about Barker's arrest. This meeting was held on the 3rd of April. Barker was not allowed to attend. The meeting decided he should be dismissed, and this recommendation was sent to the University Council, who was the governing body. So I just want to record, because they wanted it recorded, Miss Luckins, Dr. Bedgegood, and Paul Day all recorded their dissent. So in, even in terms of that time, when homosexual relationships were illegal, this was a minor offence. I think there were $50, 75, £50, pounds, 75 pound fines. But... On the 4th of April, the day after that, that Education Council meeting, this editorial appeared in the Herald. So, expressing outrage at name suppression. It speaks of sordid cases, it speaks of duty to publish names, it speaks of mental and sexual aberrations, it speaks the public should be informed on aspects of crime which expose the community to depravity, and the whole community suffers when magisterial sympathy prohibits publication and so on. You don't need to read it. Um, but the righteous rhetoric of the editorial clearly has another purpose, since Barker's name had already been published. And as Bill Pearson wrote, it all created a scandal at university. So the editorial was carefully directed at the meeting of the University Council on Monday the 9th of April, five days later, which would decide Baker's, Barker's fate. So 
Pearson writes that the editorial was written by a professor who was a lay preacher. And Pearson doesn't name him, but I will say there is one standout candidate. Professor Blakelock in classics was a fundamentalist lay preacher. He was a regular journalist under the name of Grammaticus in the Weekly News and later a regular columnist for the Herald. He was also a member of that university council which would meet to decide Barker's fate in five days' time. So his fate was sealed. After the council meeting, Kirkness, the registrar, wrote to Barker saying, the university council, believing that your recent conviction for a criminal offence has ended your usefulness as one of the other education tutors, etc., etc. So Barker fought back. He refused to resign. He sent an invoice for his translation rights for the seagull. Lillian Barker sent an invoice for the costuming of 12 productions since 1958. University ignored all this. The Lecturers Association, of which Bill Pearson was an executive member, and therefore I think is, oh, the letter's written a long time later, he will remember very well, fought hard on Barker's behalf. Frank Sargison raised money for the Barkers. On the other hand, the Association of University Teachers, to distinguish these organisations, was not sympathetic. And if you look at um, Paul Miller's biography, he writes there, quoting Bill Pearson, a meeting of the staff association, the AUT was called, and many staff were there in a mood of self-righteous hostility. But I remember Alan Kurnow standing before the meeting defending the producer and referring to him as a man I am proud to call a friend. I think that's why Kurnow put his, his obituary in the star and not the herald. It's also worth mentioning, I think, that Kurnow's play, Dr. Pom, which has never been published, um, that Barker directed two and a half years later at a place called the Rembrandt Art Theatre, which was actually part of the Paris Boulevard coffee shop off High Street. Um, that play is an absurdist satire on the university, and one feels not on just any university. The sad thing about this production was that Barker's actors, who were Sybil Westland and Desmond Locke at the time, um, had full-time day jobs. So the lack of a professional framework for the new company, for Ronald and Lillian Barker Productions, meant the play was desperately under-rehearsed and a terrible disappointment to Kurnow and presumably to Barker as well. And Kurnow said, I make no claims and I admit no faults since the play has yet to be performed. So this was, as far as I can see, the last production that Barker directed, though he continued writing commentary and critique. Kurnow, interestingly, was still trying to get the overseas expert put on and Dr. Pom put on. He was writing to Richard Campion, trying to get it directed at Downstage in 1967 as a double bill with Baxter's uh, Spots of a Leopard. So Kurnow was still trying at that point. But it is the point at which um, everything in CAS theatre stops. The Seagull is the last performance. They do 28 touring shows. They don't do an Auckland season and so on. So... I just, my question really is the retrospect question, I suppose. What if CAS theatre had continued to tour on a modest scale in combination with a boutique experimental theatre housed within the university's campus and undertaken drama training courses within the university's programmes from 1962 onwards? 
supported in some way by the Queen Elizabeth Arts Council, which came into existence in 63. Because this model is close to downstage when it arrived in 1964, which was the most successful of the professional theatres in New Zealand to emerge in the 1960s. It was small scale, it was local and regional, strong links to the local university, mobile to some extent, but with a home base, modern and innovative, but also educational, committed to New Zealand plays, but internationalist in its outlook. But sadly, this was not the dream that was to come true for Auckland. But we can see that two things emerged after this. One was the summer Shakespeare. In February 1963, directly after this, um, Professor Musgrove directed Hamlet, which was well known, launching of that gloriously amateur all-comers university community-based annual event that was installed instead in a way. Um, and of course, the summer Shakespeare went on until the pop-up globe scooped up the barge shares and the discount rates and Summer Shakespeare Corp collapsed. <laughs> That's how you should describe it, I think. <laughs> um, and the other thing to emerge, of course, was the Mercury. Now, if you look at Tarling's, Nicholas Tarling's history of the Mercury, he does not mention CAS Theatre at all. It's quite extraordinary. He mentions the New Zealand Players as a precursor, but in comparison to the Vivian Lee, we get the 700-seat theatre and we get a board established on the 3rd of April 1966, and the board of the Mercury Theatre consisted of Professor Reid from the university, 1K Williams, who I don't know who that is, Mrs. F. Maidment, who was the wife of the VC of the university, uh, Vincent Lay, who was in charge of the University of Auckland Finance Registry, Issa English, a company director, and J.R. Allen, a bank manager. It's really only one theatre person visible in the whole lineup. And then it opens with the Admiral Crichton on the 1st of May. So we come back, I think, to the question around must we have a theatre? If we must have a theatre, what must we have? Or Treplev's paradox would be a sight better off with nothing at all, maybe. But whatever you decide to answer about that, I think that Kurnow is right um, that the theatre in Auckland does turn on those years between 58 and 64 in retrospect, and it is time for that retrospect now. I'll stop there. The work is varied, and although they naturally strike jobs like this, the women in the cast insist on equality with the men. It's essentially a team job, and behind each evening's performance there's a lot of hard work. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. All links are in the Talk notes.